Morning. Boom. Well, I don't know about you, but I would not want to work 40 hours in a hospital. Uh, that's about how many hours I spent in hospitals this past week. And I have a new respect and an admiration for you who are doctors and nurses and others who care and minister to others through the Ministry of Healthcare. It is an amazing uh, line of work. And having spent about 30 or 40 hours between visits to Eric Paulson at UCI and visits to my father-in-law at Mission, uh, boy, it's, uh, it, and it's amazing, I'll say this, how many Christians are in healthcare? You ever notice that? How many Christian doctors there are? How many Christian nurses there are? It seems that every single one of the nurses my father-in-law gets is a Christian nurse who prays for him as uh, he's being cared for. Uh, for those of you that may not have heard, uh, we've been praying for two, uh, two men, uh, friends of Coast, uh, Eric Paulson and Bob West. Eric Paulson was diagnosed with SJS, Stevens-Johnson Syndrome. Last week, we prayed and just had a prayer service where we asked God to let this syndrome peak. It's a syndrome that can, uh, that can take your life if it gets severe enough. And uh, Eric was even told um, a week ago Thursday by the doctor, he said, I need you to know that you, you may want to get your affairs in order just in case. But we prayed on Sunday and I know thousands have been praying for Eric and today, I'm happy to report that um, on that very Sunday last week when we prayed, the doctors indicated to him that they thought it had peaked. And that now, Eric is on the mend, total, totally healing well. He's still in pain, but his, his skin looks amazing, and there even talk, there is even talk of him going home this week. Is that amazing or what? Yes. And I know Eric was very grateful for all the cards and notes that you wrote to him. Uh, as for my father-in-law, Bob, um, it was a really hard week. Uh, I won't lie to you. Uh, it was very scary. Um, Wednesday morning was the worst. And uh, so bad that um, we, we didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, we, we were scared as a family. But God was gracious to us. And uh, by Wednesday afternoon and evening, he had made phenomenal improvement and apparently a gallstone which has been the, the the source of the problem at all this whole time a, a gallstone which was stuck in in a por portion of his body the doctor said it somehow it just passed surgery they couldn't do it through surgery they had attempted twice couldn't do it and then by Wednesday about midday he all of a sudden the pain was gone and it had passed. And so here Bob is today. He's on the mend. He, his heart rate's still a little high. And so please pray that his heart rate stabilizes. But he's looking at, uh, at gallbladder surgery sometime this week or next. So just pray for his continued recovery. It's amazing what a little stone can do in your body. God has been good to our church family. And uh, I, I want to just recognize him for it. So, uh, so let's, let's stand together and just... Thank the Lord for what he's been doing in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we would be so remiss not to look up and acknowledge you right now. Uh, we prayed, God, last week for many requests for Eric, for Bob, and there were many others. 
And God, we've already seen your hand at work. We thank you, God, for the power of prayer. The knowledge that you listen to us is so comforting that you hear what we specifically asked for with Eric, that his syndrome would peak last Sunday. And now to know that it did that very day, maybe that very hour, the Lord, we're bolstered and encouraged in the faith by that. And for what you're doing through Bob and through many others, Lord, just healing and bringing peace, we give you thanks. And we're just continually indebted uh, with gratitude to you, God. Help us now, Lord, to express that back to you in, uh, in an increase of our faith, in a desire to honor and worship and, and glorify you more, and in a passion now to dig into your word and, and learn more, soak up more about all we can, about the benefits that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, God, for your love for us, for your listening ear toward us. We pray now that you would guide us and speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 622. I had one person come up to me last Sunday and say I shamed them into bringing their Bible on Sunday, so I was happy about that. Uh, Bring your Bible to church. It's important. Mark it up with a pen. Take some notes. We're going to have a good Bible study here this morning. Uh, The ushers uh, have passed out by now, hopefully, the the handout. The title of today's message, it's going to be part one of a two-part series. Perhaps three-part, but I think two-part. It's going to be the false teaching at Colossae. Part one, examine the source. Part one, examine the source. You know, when my father-in-law went into the hospital on Saturday night, a week ago Saturday night, uh, he came in with incredible abdominal pain, and he was just keeled over in ER at mission, and they were examining him, and they didn't know what was going on, and they took him back, and they did a CAT scan, they did an MRI, they did an EKG, they did an ultrasound, they did another CAT scan, and another And it took them multiple tests throughout the week and during his time there. And it took a good 24 hours uh, from the point of entering ER to the time where he was in, uh, in the hospital admitted for them to figure out what was going on. But all the while, the doctors were trying to get to the source of the problem. They were taking all these tests. They were, they were, putting Bob through these rigorous tests all around that they might pinpoint the source of the problem. There were a lot of things on the outside that were indicators of what was happening, but until they could get to the core, until they could see inside, until they could get the right picture of what was actually happening within his body, they did not know how to treat him. Today, in our portion of Colossians. Paul is admonishing the church at Colossae to go to the core. Don't look at the outside. There's a lot of distractions on the outside. It could be many things on the outside. But as you dig deeper, as you test more, as you get to the core, the source, Paul says that's where you're going to find truth, 
That's where you're going to find significance. That's where you're going to find meaning. That's where you're going to find solutions. The core that Paul was speaking of was Christ. And in Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15, we will read about finding and holding on to the core. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2. I'll read it one time through, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes to the church, or again, this is a letter. He's writing a letter to the church, and he says this, As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, through empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For it's in Him that dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you're complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive. Together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We're having to stop mid-thought in Paul in Colossians 2. It's unfortunate that we don't have uh, two hours together uh, to teach and go through all of it, but I know some of you would get a little hungry. Um, so we're going to have to stop mid-thought there in 15. It's a hard break, but we'll, you'll see the rest of it next week. Let's look again at verse 6. Paul says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. As you've received the Lord, Paul gives an expression there. As you've received Him, an expression by Paul of his confidence in their reception of the gospel. He assumes it. He writes to them, not having ever been to this church, but hearing the testimony of Epaphras and Archippus and others who had come from that church and had come to visit Paul on house arrest in Rome, when they told Paul what was happening in the church, when they told Paul about the kind of people that had received the gospel and and who were walking with the Lord, Paul was so encouraged and so he writes back to them and assumes their regeneration. He assumes their faith in Christ. He assumes that they have in fact received the gospel and are saved. As you 
have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord. I'm confident that you have, Paul says. So now walk in Him. Walk in Him. It's a command. In Greek here, it's, it's kind of interesting. Paul's using a little bit of alliteration. He's using two P words. He says, as you've received Him, pare labete, now walk in Him, peripatete. As you've received Him, pare labete, now walk in Him, peripatete. He's using a, a poetic form here to induce them, to, uh, to encourage them in the faith. Walk in Him. You've received Him. Now walk. Walk in His light. This is the first, by the way, of about five or six instances of the phrase, in Him. In Him. Which Paul uses over and over again in this section of Colossians. Our life is good. Our life is healthy. Our, our life is complete and whole when it's in Him. He goes on to say in verse 7, to be rooted in Him, to be built up in Him as you've been taught. Here he goes from the P words to E words. He says, rooted in Him, epizomenoi, built up in Him, emoikatamumenoi. I'm not going to say that again. As you've been taught, edidakathete. He's saying PPP in verse 6 and EEE in verse 7. He's using poetry that you might hear clearly. The passion in His words. I want you to, now that you've received Him, go walk in Him. I want you to be rooted. I want you to be built just as you've been taught. He doesn't want them to abandon their faith. They've already accepted it. He wants them to press on. You've received Him, now walk in Him. Let your faith sink down deep. Let it be rooted. Established. Let it grow. Let it be built up in Christ. How do I grow? I grow based on what I'm taught. Paul says, be rooted, be established, be built up in Him as you've been taught. Abounding and increasing in your faith with thanksgiving. Where are you getting taught? Is that teaching grounding you deeper in Christ? Is it stretching you to grow? Or is that teaching stunting you? Are you receiving too much milk of the Word and not enough meat? Or are you so uh, consumed with the meat of the Word and the, and the theology and the doctrine of it all that you lose out on some of the hard aspects of it? There, I meet... You know, we, we, I interact with all kinds of Christians. And uh, uh, in the church and outside the church, here and, and elsewhere, and inevitably, um, you know, there's, there's folks that they go to church and they say, oh, I want the pastor to, to just go easier. This is too meaty. And then you get other folks who say, oh, I want, I want the pastor to, to dig in a little bit more. This is, this is weak sauce. I don't know what weak sauce means, but I'm, I'm, I'm told it means something like milk. And you get, you get the whole spectrum, the gamut. Some people want better teaching and stronger and deeper, and others want, hey, I want it easier, light and fluffy. The point Paul's making here is, look, you grow through instruction. That is one of the primary methods of growth. 
And so you don't just need the milk of the word. If all you're wanting is the, the fluff, the, 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 the happy parts, the joyful parts of God's word, you're not getting enough. And on the flip side, if all you want is the meat and the theology and the doctrine and you just want to fill your head with a bunch of knowledge, you're also missing the point because the growth that Paul's talking about is spiritual growth. It's, it's growth from the inside out. It's growth that will penetrate your heart, not your head, not, not just your head, but your heart. And then it will express itself through your thought life, through your words, through your actions. Am I getting taught? Am I pushing myself in 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 uh, grounding myself in God's Word? Am I being stretched to grow? Am I learning things that are hard to learn in God's Word? Am I putting myself in, in situations where I can be stretched and pushed? Not just for my head, but for my heart. The Colossians knew the Colossians knew where they first were receiving instruction. It was from their young pastor, Epaphras. Read chapter 1, verse 7. But there were others in and around the church that were also beginning to teach as well. Only these teachers were quite different than Epaphras or Archippus. These teachers were teaching some aberrant teaching even perhaps we might say heretical teaching. And that is why Paul writes the letter of Colossians that you and I read now. He was concerned that this new church, a brand new church, maybe less than 10 years old, would become persuaded by false teachers who were infiltrating its ranks. And that is what we read in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, Beware, though, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, beware, another command. He said, he said as you receive Christ, now walk in Him, a command. And then he says, beware, another imperative, another command. Be aware of this. Don't let anyone or anything cheat you. A better way of putting it in the Greek there might be, don't let anyone rob you. Don't let anyone plunder you. Don't let anyone pillage you. Paul's words imply that we have something valuable. We know the truth. We have faith in Christ. We live rooted and established in Him. We have something valuable in Christ. And so Paul warns that what we have of value, if we're not careful, some of it can be robbed of us. It can be pillaged. It can be plundered. It can be taken away. You say, well, what can be taken away? Well, one thing we know it's not. They can't take away our salvation. No false teacher, no false ideology, no thing following the moment of faith in Christ can rob us of our salvation. Jesus said if we believe in Him, we will not perish, 
but have everlasting life. The destiny of those who believe in Christ is heaven, period. But we can lose a lot in this life if we let the foundations of our faith erode by some worldly philosophy, by some tradition of man. And there are countless philosophies competing for your attention. There are philosophies of materialism. There are philosophies of money. There are philosophies of business. There are philosophies of politics. There are philosophies of science. The philosophies of education, of marriage, of parenting, and I could go on. There are a lot of different ways of thinking, instruction, that we take in, in any given field, that affects our day-to-day life, that Paul says can actually rob you of spiritual benefit. Aberrant philosophies in any area of life that detract us from Christ can rob us of things like wisdom, personal and spiritual growth. The further we get from Christ, it can rob us of joy, of hope, of peace. And it can replace those with feelings of worry and anxiety, frustration, disappointment, anger even. The enemy can plunder and rob us of much. He can take a Christian who's growing and maturing and and pressing forward And once they start adopting some worldly philosophies in any given area of their life, they can all of a sudden take that road of improvement and then start regressing and start walking it back. Stunted. Once mature and now returning to immaturity. Once strong and now returning to weakness. Paul says, don't be plundered. You can be robbed, not of your salvation, but of your spiritual maturity. You can regress. And Paul was concerned that the church in Colossae was regressing, that they were facing the potential of regressing. So I ask you, where are you in your current walk with Christ? I mean, some of you have been believers as long as you can remember. Others of you are newer Christians. Some of you are maybe still exploring the faith. Regardless of where you're at, as you look at your life, and as you look five and ten and twenty years back, are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you deepening your faith? Or has this been a year of regression? Has this been a year in which you're actually losing maturity? and progress, could it be that you're subscribing to some worldly philosophies? That materialism, I have to, I have to have this to be happy. That, that in your marriage, you're reading books that, uh, that don't subscribe to what Jesus would say about marriage or what Paul would say about marriage. That in your business, you're doing practices in business that you know it gets the sale, but it's not how Christ would operate. Paul says that when Jesus is not at the center of how we think about anything, 
then that philosophy we're subscribing to is nothing but empty deceit. That goes for whether you're a businessman or woman, a parent, a student, or whatever. In the mid-1990s, there arose a popular question in Christian circles, what would Jesus do? The question is not irrelevant some 20 years later. But perhaps a better question with respect to Colossians 2 would be how would Jesus have us think? How would Jesus have me think about my marriage? How would Jesus have me think about how I parent? How would Jesus have me think about my politics? How would Jesus have me think about how I run my business or how I am an employee at a place of business? Am I rooted in Christ as I live day to day? Or am I being tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, very akin to what he's striving at in Colossians 2.8. Is my soul being plundered? Is my mind being pillaged, robbed by empty, deceptive, and worldly ways of thinking, by traditions made up by men and women? Paul says such empty philosophies are, quote, according to the basic principles of the world. Stoikei. Stoikei in Greek, the basic principles of the world. In various Bible translations I've listed on the back side of your outline, uh, just a little bit of the, some of the meat here of this word, stoikei. In some of your Bibles, New King James, New American Standard, NIV, translations, you'll see the, the phrase basic or elementary principles of the world. In other translations like the English Standard Version or the New Revised, Standard, uh, New Revised Version, you'll see something like evil spirits or elemental spirits, meaning demons or evil spirits. It could really go either way here. There's good evidence that stoicheia meant both in this day and age in which Paul was writing. And either way, uh, both translations drive at the same point. Paul is saying this. He's saying, if the philosophies of the world that you're subscribing to are taking your eyes off Christ, then of course, those philosophies, elemental as they are, basic as they are, they come from the enemy. They come from his agents. They come in, these philosophies do, to divert your eyes from what God wants you to be thinking about. To divert your eyes from this book, when you think about how to be a husband or a wife or a parent. To take your eyes off of this book when you think about how you ought to act in business. To take your eyes off God's Word when you consider how to go about your day-to-day life. Whether the stoichei is rudimentary and undeveloped teaching that is beneath God's Word or whether it's in fact the evil spirits and demons that give rise to such undeveloped and rudimentary teaching. Paul says the point is, it takes your eyes off of Christ. And anything that takes your eyes off of Christ needs to be gotten rid of. You've received Christ, Paul said. Walk in Him. You don't need anyone or anything but Him. He continues in verse 9. 
to verse 12. Notice the repetition. He says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Do you see the pattern? We are to live, breathe, and act by the power of Christ. When we wake, we wake in Him. As we walk, we walk in Him. When we talk, we talk as if He is speaking through us. When we act, we act in His name as His representative. You and I are Christ's. We've been bought at a price. Now go and glorify God in your body. Jesus, Paul says in verse 9, He fully manifests. He fully displays. He fully shows us who God is in bodily form. In Christ dwells the fullness of God. In the flesh, in person, it's through Jesus that we see God. And if Jesus shows us God, then we are only complete when we're in Jesus, when we're in His sphere, when we're in His presence, when we're relying on His power. We don't gain that fullness through the world. We don't learn a new trick through a worldly ideology. We don't get the secret of life by looking outside of God's Word and trying to find something that that tickles the ear. Paul says, all you have is in Christ. All you need is in Christ. Why go elsewhere? Verse 11 and 12 refer to two physical acts, circumcision and baptism. But Paul uses these physical symbols in a spiritual sense. He says, in Christ we've been circumcised. That is to say, we've cut off the previous life of sin and we've put on Christ. In Christ we've been baptized, in verse 12, which is to say, while once we were overcome by the waters of sin and death, even buried by them, But now we've come out of the water. We've been raised with Christ through faith in the working of God. Paul says, don't you see? Don't you see all you have? Don't you remember where you've come from? All the great things God has done for you? Why go elsewhere? There's no other example, a better example of this for us than last Sunday. Last Sunday we prayed and I said, I want you to pray specifically that Eric's syndrome would peak today. I don't usually get that specific in my prayers. And I have a a hunch why. The reason why I don't usually get that specific in my prayers is because deep down, even though I don't want to admit it, 
I don't want to ask God specifically for something because if it fails to happen, I might get discouraged. I want to pray more generally. God, would you heal in your time? God, would you uh, bring provision when it's, it's right? Lord, would you, would you show mercy when you see fit? And that's, that's how many of us pray. We, we pray in generalities, and it's not wrong to pray in generalities. Not at all. But you know what? As we came here last Sunday, I got a little bold in my faith, and I said, I want us to pray specifically that it peaks today, that his syndrome peaks. Because if it doesn't peak, it can threaten his life. And so we did. We prayed and we said, God, today, we want you to heal today. We want this syndrome to stop today. We want Eric to mend right now. And it happened. It happened. God doesn't always answer those specific prayers. And sometimes we don't like to pray that specifically for fear that we would get discouraged if it didn't happen. But you know what? Last week should be plentiful evidence to us that all we need is in Christ. It's certainly not in the hands of the doctors who were overcome with shock when Eric started to heal that fast. It doesn't come through the hand of of an earthly physician. All we have, all we need comes through Christ. Why go elsewhere? Paul says, don't you see? Don't you know? All you need is right here for you. It's found in Christ. Paul says, remember where you once were and look where you are now. Remember where you once were. Look at verse 13. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against all of us, which was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Paul says, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were impure by the uncircumcision of our hearts. But by faith, God made us alive again. Together with Christ, He forgave us. He pardoned all our trespasses, all of them, past, present, future. Notice at the end of verse 13, having forgiven all trespasses, He removed them all. He wiped them all out. And then that phrase, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, which was against us, which was contrary to us, that phrase, handwriting of requirements, in English, it sounds a lot like Paul is talking about the law. And that would make sense, because Jesus has fulfilled the law. 
Its requirements are no longer our requirements. The burdens of the law are no longer on us because Jesus has died and fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled our burden. But the word here is chirographon in Greek. And it doesn't refer to the law. Instead, it refers to a handwritten record of debts owed. You get your, you know, your credit card statement in the mail. We hate that statement, don't we? We get the statement and we look at it and uh, it's a couple pages and we're looking at it going, I, I, I spent that much? And I'm flipping the thing around and looking at page three and four and looking at my wife and no. And, uh, and I'm like, what? Five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, you know. We're looking at this statement and we're going, my goodness, now how, do we, how did I accumulate so much debt in one month? Chirographon in Greek was a handwritten record of debts. It was used in business transactions. It was, it was given from one man to another to let him know how much he owed, what his bill was, what his debts were, what the balance was. And so the thought here is that God, through Christ, has wiped away, has erased every record of debt that you will ever owe. He's erased everyone. He's whited it out. Every wrongdoing, every sin, everything you didn't do right in the past, He's wiped your slate clean. Everything that you're failing at today, God has already removed that burden from you. And anything that you might fail to do after today, in the future, when you fail Him, and you will, and I will, when we fail God in the future, God will look back on His Son, and He'll look back at what is nailed to the cross, and He'll say, it's okay. I've nailed that to the cross. I've forgiven you. I still love you, and I always will. That's peace. That's forgiveness. That whether it's in our past, in our present, or in our future, all trespasses and sins have been nailed to the cross of Christ. Our record of debts has been wiped away, erased. That's peace. It's places like Colossians 2.14 where theologies of eternal security and assurance are bolstered. For if all trespasses are forgiven, if all debts owed have been paid and will be paid, then we know that our eternal destiny is secure the moment we place our faith in Christ. We have rest in Jesus. We needn't worry. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul closes in verse 15. We close in verse 15, I should say. He writes, 
having disarmed, he's speaking now of what God has done through Christ, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. God has disarmed principalities and powers, words used in Greek to describe the angelic realm, the evil angelic spirits. He's disarmed them. He's stripped the devil of his power. He's exposed demons and evil spirits for what they are, imposters, whose power is inferior and whose time is short. God through Christ, through Jesus' victory over death, has proved himself stronger, mightier than our adversary. And like a conquering general, our God has begun a victory procession to celebrate his magnificent power over the wicked forces, a parade, in fact, that gives us joy and hope, knowing that as he has conquered evil, so we need not fear, for we have Christ, the fullness of God. It is places like Colossians 2.15 where we develop theological truths like the impossibility of a Christian ever being indwelt or utterly consumed by a demon or evil spirit. Paul says God has disarmed them. You say, but pastor, if God has disarmed Satan, if God has disarmed the principalities and powers, then why is evil so very much alive in our day and age? Why am I still tempted? Why, why do I still sin if evil has been disarmed? And to that I would simply say, you can take away a man's guns, but he still has his fists. You can take away someone's firearm, a powerful weapon, no doubt. There's some who would like to take it away, I'm told. But a man still has his fists. The principalities and powers have been disarmed. It's fascinating. You look at the Gospels, you see demon possession after demon possession after evil spirits after evil afflictions and it's crazy how many stories there are of it and Jesus is constantly dealing with the evil and spiritual realm people who are possessed and whatnot um, and then you get to the epistles later on in the New Testament and it just drops precipitously the number of instances of demon possession and, and evil spirits Today I'm not suggesting at all that such things don't occur. They do occur. In fact, they occur in Haiti where we minister. There are uh, multiple instances of demon possession, evil spirits that afflict others. But in general, what Paul is driving at here and what he's speaking to is the fact that what we saw in the Gospels with Christ was guns blazing from Satan and his adversaries. And what you see now is that their firearms have been taken off their waist and they're left with their fists and they're fighting their very last battle. And Satan's losing that battle. He's been disarmed and God is continually disarming him more. As time goes by and when Jesus Christ returns, we will, fee we will see the final disarmament 
of Satan and his minions. We will see their fists melt when God finally crushes sin, death, and evil. There will be no more fight left in them. The weapons in Satan's arsenal are being continually limited now through Christ. Oh, he still has power. Satan can still afflict. Demon possession is still very real, though not for a Christian. But by Jesus' victory on the cross, the power of evil is now stunted permanently. It is being held at bay. As much as you and I see it today, it is being held at bay. God's blanket of protection is upon us. And I often wonder, one day when we get to heaven, I, I, I always use the illustration after 9-11. After 9-11, everyone I knew, everyone I knew, including me, fully expected another large-scale terrorist attack on our nation. Maybe a catastrophic one. Who knows what it might look like. We all thought it. After 9-11, we were all on pins and needles waiting for that next attack, that next expression of evil. And by and large, there have been attacks, no doubt, but we haven't seen one on the scale that we saw some 11 years ago, 12 years ago. God's blanket of protection is, is on us. Sometimes that, that veil of protection is lifted temporarily and we see evil full force. And I know the men and women who serve in our armed forces see it when they go overseas. But make no mistake about it, Satan's power is at bay. God is holding him back now through Christ. And on the last day, God will forever erase the power of evil. Some questions to consider on your outline just to, to think about as we go through this part one of a two-part series on what the teachers were perhaps driving at in Colossae. Again, we're looking at what the false teaching may have looked like. We didn't get to it in depth today. You'll see it a lot more next week. But here are some questions to go home with. Number one, am I living with conscious awareness that Christ is always with me? That he is readily available to help me think, speak, and act? Am I living with that conscious awareness that Christ is with me? He can help me think right now in this difficult time. He can help me know what to say right now. He can help me know how to act right now. I just need to ask him. You do not have because you do not ask. Ask the Lord. He'll guide your thoughts, your words, your actions each and every moment of the day. Secondly, which worldly philosophies are infiltrating my life? Think about that. Could be anything. Marriage, parenting, business, science, politics, the list goes on. Where am I subscribing to something that is just worldly? Where am I turning to teaching and ideas of men and women more than the teachings of God's Word? Where am I turning to the teaching, of idea, teaching and ideas of men and women more than the teaching of God's Word? And third, and finally, do I live in fear of the enemy's attacks? 
Do I live in fear of the enemy's attacks? Or am I bold to lay claim to the knowledge that God has disarmed evil and that the power within me, that is God's Spirit, is mightier than he who is in the world, that is Satan? There are some of us that live in fear. I I remember speaking to one gal, um, a Christian woman, who uh, was constantly in fear of evil spirits. And she was petrified of evil spirits which she thought were um, infiltrating her home um, disrupting her family life um, and and causing causing a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety and on the one hand I, I spoke words of affirmation to her I said I have no doubt that an evil spirit can afflict you Um, an evil spirit can be sent by the adversary and he can cause oppression in your life. He can cause disruption. An evil spirit can cause uh, problems in your marriage, with your children, at work. There's a great many things that the spiritual realm where we to lift the veil, we would see, my goodness, that was an evil spirit afflicting me in this matter. But at the same time, I, I, I turned to the woman and I said, you know, but... <laughs> This spirit is inferior to who you have. You have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, in your husband, in your children. And I said, you do not need to fear. You need to be bold. And you need to call on God specifically, to call upon Him specifically to disarm this affliction, to disarm what is taking place in your life. That God, by the power of Christ and through His Spirit, would give you blessing and not cursing, would give you hope and not despair, would give you boldness and courage and not fear. Am I living with conscious awareness that Christ is with me? He can help me think, speak, act. I need to watch out for these worldly philosophies. They infiltrate quickly. And I need not fear, no matter what I'm going through, because he who is in me is stronger, mightier than anything that might come my way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to be confident, not fearful or living in trepidation. God, we want to be bold knowing that you are strong and powerful to overcome anything that we may face. Any hardship, any trial, any affliction, any oppression. God, we've all gone through uh, our share this past week. Many of us have. Some of us, we may see some uh, hardships and trials yet ahead. Regardless of when it comes or where it comes from, God, help us to have boldness. Let us be resolved in your word and on Christ to not let worldly philosophies infiltrate, to not listen to what the worldly gurus say or the new self-help books, but to look at your word and to know that it's in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, through Christ that I have everything I need. We thank you, God, for your glorious power. 
power that is made manifest in us when we just ask you to help us. Lord, may we be bold. May we we rely on you more in the coming days and weeks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.